This is what it is, okay? I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. Now, you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now, water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. In September 1971, ABC aired an episode of the show Long Street, starring Bruce Lee titled The Way of the Intercepting Fist, where that quote was originally featured. In this episode, let's journey to Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the lab where mechanical engineering students are preparing to tackle all sorts of challenges. How does this tie back to Bruce Lee? through this guy mostly. Well, my name is Tasker Smith, and I am currently a technical instructor at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And um, I'd say my large, my, my, my real mission is to teach students how to use machine tools safely and uh, how to develop concepts sort of in physical form. Tasker Smith is a technical instructor at MIT's Papillardo Lab for Mechanical Engineering. As you'll hear through this interview, his background has a striking resemblance to television's Adam Savage of Mythbusters. That is, he's held roles in all sorts of environments, performance, toys, consumer products, and lucky for the young mechanical engineers at MIT, he wound up eventually making his way to higher education, cultivating young talent to be as skilled technically and emotionally to enter a world of professional engineering as they can possibly be. We talked about approaches from the lab that I think will be of interest to everyone, but especially those educators who are serious about maker education and the role that pre-engineering programs play in schools and after school all over the country. If you're looking for tips and best practices, just curious what goes on in the MEC-E lab at MIT, or excited to learn more about how Tasker went from studying theater arts to modeling toys, stick around. A special treat from this episode, Tasker offers a set of files for the poster panels that come up toward the end of the interview for listeners to grab and repurpose in their own shops and makerspaces. Do check out the show notes at nosuchthingpodcast.org to find that gift from him. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. Tasker, thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate having you here. Uh, I'm really excited to have this conversation. I think that um, one of the things I'm interested in uh, accomplishing is starting to have more conversations with folks who are doing the kinds of things in higher ed that uh, are potentially further along down the pathway for, um, you know, say a, a middle or high school teacher who's thinking about building a makerspace in their school and and really attracting young people to the role of making and, and producing things as, as engineers and designers might end up uh, at a place like MIT. And, and so, um, I think there's all kinds of ways that uh, it's important that we open up some of the dialogue uh, between the types of educators who uh, are at different points in these learning trajectories for young people. So I'm, I'm excited to have that conversation with you or at least get it started. And, and uh, who knows, maybe we'll, we'll turn it into uh, a, a few different episodes. But um, so thank you for being here. That's great. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. And uh, it's, it's funny that you say that. It's definitely a changing landscape. You know, uh, as of 
five years ago, we were still encountering students who had not had a lot of exposure to things like 3D printing. And um, you know, as the past years, as technology changes, uh, sort of the, the capabilities and the interests of students is constantly sort of morphing as they as we encounter them. So it's interesting to see, and it's I think it's uh, it's definitely a moving moving target. Yeah. Yes. Uh, amen. Um, so I want to start in a, in a, uh, with leather forming. Um, so this is a craft that dates back to 3000 BC mm-hmm. and, uh, I'm, I'm curious to, let's start there. And, and I'm curious what an instructor at, the, uh, certainly one of the countries, if not if not the most prestigious teaching lab for engineering, um, what is an instructor doing tinkering in centuries old craft there? <laughs> well, um, you know, I think a big part of my role at MIT is um, a part of it is teaching about technology, but part of it is um, introducing ideas that are novel and interesting and sort of spark uh, some curiosity in, uh, in the students that come through our lab. And so uh, I always have little things that I'm sort of monkeying around with and um yeah, 3D printing is amazing for a lot of reasons, but um, one thing that's often said about it is that the um, the artifacts that are created feel kind of cheap or plastic, um, which they are, but they're um, you can see evidence of build lines and they don't feel like very um, substantial. And so one thing I was playing around with was this idea of uh, forming leather, um, the intent being to create uh, sort of artifacts that felt uh, authentic and sort of timeless and maybe even expensive. Um, so it was sort of a fun experiment that I conducted this past summer, uh, sort of playing around with that idea. And, um, uh, and, uh, so I wrote about it a little bit and make magazine was nice enough to publish an article, uh, recently in their, their, uh, their new guide to digital fabrication. But, um, it was sort of a fun experiment for me. And it's one of the, one of the joys of working in education is summertime is a little bit, uh, a little bit more time to kind of, uh, explore and kind of experiment with ideas. That was kind of uh, that was sort of the the big idea, and um, you know a lot of these things. What I'll do is I'll is I'll take this concept, I'll play around with it, I'll see if I can sort of tease out some some big ideas, and then we'll uh, we'll create a panel that we'll put up in our lab, um, and it just becomes sort of a stopping point on our tours, or if that topic will come up um, in conversation. Where in this case, um, introducing students to the idea of three D printing, and maybe you've heard of it, but maybe you don't know. Um, yeah, it's not sort of front of mind. What are some applications that you can use it for? So we have all kinds of examples of things, and so we now have a uh, we now have a panel that talks about using uh, creating leather forms out of three D printing, which it's not it's not directly applicable to you know mechanical engineers, but um, I hope that it's the kind of thing that inspires you know it sort of plants a seed that will maybe you know sort of be lead to something an idea for someone else as they're looking for uh, solutions to problems they're trying to solve. Yeah. So for somebody who doesn't know, um, how to work leather, how does, how does a leather form work? So, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't start by saying that I'm an expert in this, but, mm-hmm. um, in my, in my experiments, um, typically what you do is you, uh, you would, um, get, uh, leather. There are different kinds of hides, um, that you use. We, we, for this experiment, like I said, commonly you'll see people use cow hides or they'll use, uh, sort of, uh, goat hides. Another common ones are used for fabrics and bags and sandals and whatnot. They have different properties to them, but um, uh, there's a uh, so we collected some different samples and I was playing around with pressing different forms in. Uh, the forms that you typically buy from different vendors will have shapes, and you 
Um, you'll typically get the material uh, sort of dampened and uh, preferably with warm water. And then you can um, use a sort of combination of pressure and, this, and a forming stamp to, to imprint hmm. leather. So it's sort of our experiments are kind of based on, on that. So taking sort of pieces of leather, um, we made sort of a sandwich. So there's kind of a positive and negative form. Uh, compress the leather between those two pieces and um, and uh, you know after some period of time sort of open the form and uh, allow the leather to dry and then it's uh, you get sort of uh, it holds the shape that um, that was uh, sort of uh, part of the the mold that we had designed and then 3d printed got it so the the pressure on the leather is more of a constant pressure not a um, you're not like you're not hammering um, hammering the mold such that it sort of punches the leather it's more of a, a slower longer pressure process exactly got exactly. it in this case i think with i think with some leather forming uh, i think it's it's involves pressure but it's not um uh yeah it's more sort of uh time-based than it is about making an impact as you might with like a like a hammer on uh, on metal got it um so I re I remember when I was a kid getting my first of those um those like western belts that have the little scene mm -hmm. on it with the eagle you know it was like uh you know maybe a horse and an eagle uh and thinking that was so cool. So um so those are typically a form that's made like a um uh, you could almost like I'm thinking of uh things like block printing and and other you have a form and then a material that goes on top of it and and it's uh replicating the image in the form or a negative of the image in the form or a positive exactly I guess. so you can buy a series of stamps that have both decorative elements like you're describing or letters or whatever it is you want to create got it at least it's a little bit novel about, about what we were playing around with was it was a two-part mold so it was uh, compressing the form like in between sort of a sandwich of details where so there's a positive and a negative yeah it's distinct from typically i think the leather forms uh they will uh, they'll press from one side with a single stamp, like you said. So on your belt loop, it's not so important that the um, you know that that detail transfers to the inside. You want to see it on the outside. Right, right. So that's pretty neat. And so, so what was the response from students? <clears throat> um, I think people are interested in the idea of it. It's always hard to tell. I mean, it's not directly applicable to what many people um, are are working on, you know, for their for their studies, but. Um, I think, you know, it, it's funny, a lot of people at, at a lot of my students are, um, they are interested in a lot of different kinds of things. And so, uh, so we, we have sort of a, a big maker community here also. And I don't know if any work is sort of, uh, it's unfolded as a result of seeing this stuff, but I think people find it interesting. It's always sort of a fun talking point. You know, it's not something I spend a lot of time talking about, but we can point to, you know, 10 different, you know, applications for, for any technology and um, to have a broad range, I think is really valuable just because it sort of opens up the possibilities. I think that's great because I think, um, I don't know if you said 10 different uses is 10 is an arbitrary number, but, but um, I think uh, one of the things I see often in, in especially middle and high school teachers who are uh, even programs of ours uh, at mouse that over the years have introduced things like 3d printing um, a lot of times educators can, can get stuck. Um, you know, it's like, we've, we've made the 
chess pieces. We've um, mm-hmm. we've made a keychain, and um, there's there's not. It, it seems like there's a little bit of a ceiling to the knowledge of how to kind of bring the thinking about how the technology extends beyond that um, forward. And so do you have um, I'm curious, I guess, if you just if you have ad- advice for educators who are thinking about a technology like 3D printing about um, how to broaden their thinking about what the tool is for. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um you know, for me personally, I mean, I'll hit those ceilings as well, because sometimes I feel like we're we're sort of light in content on a specific topic. And uh, I'll do things, and this is going to sound maybe a little bit uh, hokey, but uh, I'll, I'll do things like I'll do a, a search on Pinterest, for example, mm. or on Instagram for different ideas. And you'll stumble upon some pretty amazing stuff. Um, oftentimes, uh, links on Instagram, people will connect to an Instructables video about how they how they created something. Um, I'll give you an example. We, we had uh, looking for some ideas for uh, to pair with our laser cutter. Yep. And um, there's a there's a, a trick that if you haven't seen it before, it's pretty amazing. It's called a flexure, where you would take a solid piece of material. And I I, I say in context of uh, laser cutters, it's commonly used in that in that realm. But if you put uh, a number of different slices um, in something like a, like a thin plywood. Uh, what it does is it turns the plywood um, from a single panel into a series of beams that independently twist just a little bit. And um, in combination with one another, you can create something like a living hinge out of something that would otherwise be a rigid material. Hmm. Um, so I uh, was playing around with that idea. And on, I think it was Pinterest, I found some pictures of some artists who had created some really intricate patterns. They, they weren't quite mosaics, but they were a really interesting sort of web of different geometries that were using that principle of creating a flexure, but doing so in kind of an artistic way. Um, so by following the link through to uh, Instructables, uh, this, they were generous enough to post their files directly online. And so um, I was able to download those and then replicate them in our lab. And uh, it's just an example of something that is both interesting, but also beautiful. And I think that anytime you can kind of pair those two features together, then you can really capture people's attention and their imagination. So that's pretty cool. And as, and as an aside to that, um, one thing that we, way we built on that was to uh, experiment with that same technique using 3D printing. So creating a flexure of, of 3D printed material so that imagine um, uh, rather than having a rigid element, uh, you know, you think that typically you're constrained by the material that you're using. But in fact, if you, Play around with the geometry. You can make a you know variable, almost almost like a variable durometer, uh, you know, element that can that can flex and have like different um, can feel uh, different degrees of rigidity based on the architecture that you're 3D printing. Hmm. So um, so one idea will often sort of you know unfold into another, which is which is fun. So I mean, to other educators out there, I would say you know have a very open mind. I I, I love looking at different sources. Like you know, Make Magazine is a great source, and I. Sort of a shameless plug for them because they've been generous in <laughs> publishing some of my my writing, but um, also I mean really just floating around uh, different sort of social media uh, places and seeing what people are are making. I mean, Etsy is another great example. We see a lot of creative uses of uh, technology that you know you can feed back into your into your classrooms. Yeah, and so it's not um, it's not necessarily uh, a matter of of going and searching. Um, what other people are doing with 
3D printing and the specific materials that you're working with, it's it's more a matter of uh, finding inspiration in all kinds of, you know, constructed or crafted objects. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's part of what keeps it interesting for me as well. Um, I have I happen to be a person that has a lot of side creative projects going at any given time. So for me, it's um, like the lines between work and sort of my own sort of artistic endeavors sort of blur. Um, so, uh, so that's, you know, that's for me, it's joyful and it's fun. And I think the energy that I, that I am able to sort of find in these projects is I think that transmits to my students. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, as you're, as you're talking about, um, the different places where we find inspiration and we're talking about this sort of, uh, I want to, I want to, um, I have some things to come back to. So I want to talk about the sort of the interplay between high tech and low tech. Um, your, the, the conversation about looking out for different interests, um, makes me think of a, a carpenter friend of mine who, uh, got me really obsessed with, um, some videos on YouTube of, uh, these Japanese wood carvers who do, have you seen these, um, they're like uh, these hidden drawer boxes. Um, so, so they all of it is done completely by hand. They're they're wood. They're constructed out of wood, and it's um, picture like a small piece of furniture with, or like a jewelry box with small drawers, um, and it's constructed such that uh, every. Um, drawer is so snug in its space that um, knowing it, it, there's a sort of airflow, there's a pattern that they build into it such that when you um, push on a drawer or open a drawer, you it's the only way to open other drawers. That sounds amazing. It's like a puzzle. Exactly. It's sort of this piece of puzzle furniture. But uh, if you can imagine uh, these, these, uh, craftspeople are you know constructing these sitting on a on a log or a small bench with wood between their feet and completely doing it with hand tools and and uh the precision is is off the chart so um i think about things like that when i think about everything that we have to learn in um, sort of modern manufacturing and thinking about things like uh, desktop 3D printers um, that we should really be looking to the sort of handmade world uh, for inspiration. Um, anyway, my, my question, I'll, I'll drop a link uh, in the show notes to anyone who's interested in the, in the Japanese drawer thing. I'm, you may find yourself in a, in the same um, uh, crazy rabbit hole that I did, uh, binge watching, uh, you know, Japanese craftspeople create these drawers. <laughs> but um, my question for you is: How do you talk to students about the blend of high tech and low tech? And and uh, you know, for you at uh, the lab, um, which am I saying your lab is the Papillardo? It's uh, the Papillardo. Papillardo. Um. When you talk to students in the Papillardo lab, um, how do you how do you talk about the blend of high tech and low tech, and what the importance of that interplay is? 
Yeah. So we, so I mean, our, our lab, um, uh, is got, you know, we're, we're, we're lucky in that we've got tons of technology. Um, and, uh, I guess, I, I guess I would sort of step back and say that, you know, our, our mission in our lab is really to give uh, students context, um, for, uh, what they need to know as professional mechanical engineers out in the world. So, uh, and step even further back. So I'm at MIT and uh, we have 11,000 some students. Um, of those were uh, MIT is composed of five schools. So our lab is within the School of Engineering and within that school, we're within the Department of Mechanical Engineering. Um, and so my charter is really uh, everything that we do is about kind of uh, preparing students for lives as professionals um, in the, you know, in the world of mechanical engineering. And so it's essential that they know about a lot of these, uh, a lot of these technologies. So whether it's laser cutting or 3D printing, uh, traditional machine tool work, you know, there's, a, there's tons of technology. It's both analog and digital. And um, sometimes the best tool for, you know, it's it's always about context. So uh, the way that I kind of frame it is to say that, you know, sometimes the best tool for the job is uh, is a laser cutter, and sometimes the best tool for the job is, um, you know, is an Ulfa knife and a piece of cardboard. Mm. And um, it really is it's completely context dependent. And so, you know, really our, our mission is to sort of showcase, you know, here are all these different technologies available to you. And again, it could be analog, it could be digital, it could be a, a bandsaw and a drill press, it could be a hand tool, any, any number of those things. But to show um, each tool tends to have something that's really good at. And so what we try to do is showcase, um, you know, why would you use this tool versus that tool? What are these tools good at? And when you develop um, a real aptitude for, uh, for using these tools in the sense of what they're what they're um, really good at, then then you can really develop a sensibility about uh, using them in combination to be really smart, right? So you can cut a lot of corners. You can be strategic about how you build things, um, and in in doing so, what you're really trying to do is um, is spend time on what's really important and save time to sort of in, over the course of designing something to to build in time to develop as many iterations as, as possible. The, the big thinking being that, you know, if I can make 10 versions of something, the 10th one is going to be a lot better than if I only had uh, enough time to make two versions of it. You know, I'm just going to learn a lot along the uh, along that iterative path. So for, for us, the conversation about digital versus analog is really about, you know, what is the intent of, you know, your process? What are you trying to make? You know, what um, uh, some, something along those lines. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes, like one example I'll use sometimes is, um, you know, if I'm developing, uh, making a new refrigerator, and what I really care about is the are the features that humans interact with. So, you know, handle would be an essential part. It would be crazy for me to try to 3D print an entire refrigerator. <laughs> um, however, uh, I could very efficiently um, 3D print, you know, for example, you know, a, a feature of the handle, and then I would make maybe the body of the um, the body of the refrigerator out of cardboard and duct tape. And really what I'm trying to do is put this thing in context, but be strategic about in the materials I use and the, and the way that I'm building them so that, you know, maybe I want to make 20, if I make 20 handles, I'm going to learn a lot more from all the, um, all the people that are experimenting with this thing. than if I spent all that time trying to 3d print a single refrigerator as mm. a, to use that sort of extreme example. Mm. That's, um, that's brilliant. So, so what do you say to, Teachers, when we do a um, when we do a workshop on uh, how to teach 
prototyping uh, or iteration to young people. Um, and we have, have educators who don't believe us when we say, you know, um, things like model magic and cardboard and tape and glue are uh, foam core. Let me think exacto knives, um, hot glue. These, these are things that, um, that mechanical engineers use all the time to uh, get from ideas to, uh, to implementation. Um, can you speak to that? Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, it's all about what you're trying to learn um, in a given, you know, given context. It's it's funny because, uh, you know, it really depends on the person. Some people sort of naturally gravitate towards digital, um, towards the digital realm and some towards the analog realm. I mean, I, I mean, I think the sweet spot is really in, is in using them in combination. Um, but Absolutely. I mean, for me, the biggest the biggest trick, like when we, uh, you know, we're, when we have uh, students that are trying to explore an idea, I think the most valuable thing is to get something in their hands quickly. And there's times when having something in your hands quickly is more important than having something that's super refined. Mm. Um, but the um, it's really the big idea is it wants to be kind of appropriate for the stage of the process that you're working on. Right. So if you're, um, you know, for example, if you are. Uh, if I'm trying to design a new coffee pot for my counter and um, first thing I care about is exploring like different sort of uh, different volume sizes. If I put those in front of people and I say, hey, look, here's three different coffee pots and I'm trying to understand, you know, what sort of scale makes the most sense. You know, I'm trying to see how it fits under the under the upper counter and I'm trying to see how it fits, you know, in the context of a kitchen. But I spend a lot of time putting details into buttons and other things. Mm. If they're uh, distracted by parting lines and buttons and details that are that aren't relevant to the question I'm trying to answer, then you know I've done myself a disservice by spending all this time on unnecessary features. Yeah. For example, so in that context, you know, car, you know, foam core would be the right tool, and the um, minimizing um, detail that I'm I'm not trying to get feedback about would be uh, a thoughtful way to go about doing that. But uh, absolutely, model magic, uh, you know, clay. It, it, kind of depends on what you're what you're working on um now I'm a, I'm a big fan of you know talking about these sort of analog techniques i'm a big fan of of going and harvesting parts from things that i know that i like you know mm. so for example if i said hey i'm trying to create something like uh uh it's a little bit like a, you know it has it feels a little bit like a rubik's cube for example you know and it's got it's got some complexity to it it's it turns in a certain way I mean, Rubik's cube is maybe not the best example but the first thing I would do if I think of something I'm, I'm trying to relate to is I go out and I buy that object mm. you know, I may even cut it in half and graft it onto something else so that I can say you know this is pretty much exactly what I'm trying to do this is the fastest way for me to get there is to is to borrow it from something else just so that I can get a feel for you know I'm trying, really trying to wrap my head around a whole concept and then once I once you start to dial in details then I can really tease these things apart and spend uh, spend time either putting them into a digital form or, you know, maybe I, I if later on in the design process, I'll care a lot more about precision and about, you know, sort of the repeatability of features. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm working towards a, you know, sort of an embodiment of something that I really care about being repeatable and being, you know, having certain characteristics. Yeah. So, oh, I love sense. that. There's, I love that. Um, I think it's a, a brilliant uh, tip for 
folks who are uh, building out makerspaces, I think we focus a lot on... So if I have a library makerspace in a middle school, let's say, um, one of the questions I get asked a lot or, or the team at Mouse get, a, get asked a lot is, you know, what does it cost? What do the materials cost? And there's really, we, we don't often focus them on um, how to source materials that might actually cost nothing. Like they, you know, you might um, do something of a junk drive um, with your fellow uh, educators at the school with families who can bring in stuff that might be uh, broke or old at home, um, you know, where y- you bring it in, you have uh, some some uh, cubbies full of stuff that can be taken apart and repurposed or used for inspirations. Um, I really love that idea as a suggestion for one what one area of a makerspace might might look like. Yeah, absolutely. I worked, um, you know, a few places I've, I've worked. I worked in the toy industry for a little while and um, later for a design firm. But uh, one thing that was common between them is having sort of a library of parts, a library of different kinds of things. And they tend to sort of cluster themselves in categories, but, you know, switches and buttons and um yeah, various various kinds of things. Yeah. I had I had one colleague that I worked with who was a um, sort of interaction designer, and he would often um, work on sort of displays and interfaces of things. And he had this huge collection of uh, television remotes, mm. which is really interesting because when you look at the um, when you look at them over sort of the course of time, they started being relatively simple as as you know human beings figured out how to you know, remotely control something like a television set. And over time, they, they grew to this like dizzying complexity where you, you're, you stare down at this <laughs> at this module with a thousand buttons on it. And yeah. you have no idea where to start, you know, and then we, you it's migrate like you're, you're launching on a rocket the, ship. We, you know, we circle all the way back around to something like an iPhone, which has got one button on it, you know, one button on the face. So yeah. It's, it's funny. Um, now, now no buttons, no buttons. That's right. Um, so tell me, you talked a little bit about, uh, yourself as, uh, doing some work in the toy business and, and, uh, and other spaces. I'm curious, um, the, the, you know, cliff notes version of how you ended up at MIT and as a, an educator to young people who, you know, would potentially be following a trajectory that, that uh, you had, what did that, what did that look like for you? What was your path? No, that's, that's, uh, I'm not sure that I can create a blueprint because mine feels uh, like it was pretty unusual, but uh, I started, um, so I, uh, undergraduate studies in studio arts and performing arts. Um, I went from there to sort of try to, I actually was really interested in working in the theater and uh, I moved to Minneapolis and I was, uh, I was in pursuit of work in the theater. I had a hard time finding that. But what I did find was work for a production company that was doing work for um, sort of film and commercial work. Uh, they had a, um, a department that worked specifically on mechanical special effects. Mm-hmm. This is back in the days um, when uh, it was a toss up between doing a mechanical effect or a digital effect. You know, so am I creating an illusion that something is blowing up or am I literally blowing something up? So uh, I had sort of led me down the path to um, working with uh, a lot of machine tools and getting really interested in working with metals. We did a lot of welding and a lot mm. of um, sort of light machining. 
I decided, you know, if I'm going to get really good at this, I need to go back to school and study this in a deliberate way. And so um, I went back to school for uh, uh, a program for um, studying machine tool technology, yeah, which got me more down the path of like really sort of learning the science of, uh, of machine tool technology. Um, I'll make this quick because there are a lot of steps along the way, but went from there. Uh, to the toy design world, which where I was doing some more model making. So it's kind of a hybrid of uh, the prop making I'd done in the theater and some of the more mechanical stuff I had done mm -hmm. um, in film. And then uh, I went from there to, uh, to work for a company called Z Corporation, which is, uh, which is one of the early 3D printing pioneers. At the time, we were the fastest 3D printer in the universe, I should say, in the known universe. <laughs> just I used to say about it um but again that's you know reinforcing this idea that there's um there's a huge value in iterating and making things very quickly uh being able to do multiple iterations of something as you develop an idea is really valuable so that was kind of the sort of baked into our philosophy there um from there I went to uh to work for a design firm and there I worked as a mechanical prototyping specialist so I would partner with mechanical engineers as they developed ideas um, they were sort of the brains and I was sort of the hands. And um, uh, so we would sort of pair up and work together. They would be doing a lot of uh, uh, digital design development, you know, CAD work and designing parts. I'd be making parts and sourcing them together. We would assemble them and sort of try to identify, um, you know, if we were, they were, uh, if their, their vision was embodied in the things we were making. Uh, that was amazing. Uh, that's mm -hmm. for a company called Continuum uh, now in Boston. And um, and from there, I landed, uh, moved over to MIT, followed a colleague of mine over there. I, I'd always thought maybe something, there's something else in my future. And I thought education was possibly it. And uh, I just found this amazing opportunity working with uh, students, helping them to understand, uh, you know, how to use tools and how to develop ideas. It's really sort of a perfect um, hybrid of all the stuff I'd done before. You know, it's always working with my hands and sort of um, always enjoyed solving problem so it's a, it's a nice blend of all those things are there are there um things on the shelf either at the toy store or the target uh today that that you had a hand in early stages you know prototyping or or building models for yeah that's a good question i, I wish i could take credit for some things no i, I i'm afraid the toy realm i mean there are some classics that are out there i don't know if i really participated in many of those um there are a couple that I was, it was, we worked at the company I worked for us in Connecticut. And we did a lot of um, sort of smaller uh, concept projects for people, but uh, I got an opportunity to work on some fun Spider-Man um, projects. Oh, that's brand cool. Brand that people would be, would know of. The, the great challenge there is this kind of fun, uh, but um, model makers are always trying to sneak their, their initials into, like we were doing the, um, the patterns that would be used for making the final uh the final toys yeah. so the patterns we'd make would be sent to these uh factories in china where they would actually make the molds and injection mold so the, the model makers are always trying to sneak their initials into things in the spider nice. it was perfect because there's lots of webs and you can kind of tuck things <laughs> in there so somewhere is there a, a spider-man action figure floating around with uh with ts uh etched <laughs> like behind what? the knee or something I never succeeded, but that was I. There, uh, some of my my <laughs> colleagues certainly did. So, oh, that's terrific! Among the many lessons you passed down to <laughs> yeah, uh, right. the the youth of MIT, um, <laughs> um, yeah. that's outstanding. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I'm 
you know, it might, uh, I, I'm sure you get this a lot, but uh, one of the things people may conjure in their mind as they're hearing your background is, is one of the other, uh, um, I'm, I'm putting you in a, in a class of famous makers. Um, now that, now that you're on this show, obviously your fame, you're not going to be able to go outside. Um, but, uh, one of the other images I think people might conjure when they hear your, about your background is Adam Savage. Um, right. So, so he's similarly sort of came out of, uh, special effects and, and, a, a similarly quirky kind of, um, performance, uh, you know, performance slash engineering slash design, uh, this wacky background and, and, um, so there's there's a question for me there, which is, um, you know, there's a commercial instantiation right now of of that identity, right, and one that you know I've seen um, people like Adam Savage at at Maker Fair um, here in New York and and elsewhere, and and um, I think people have have mixed feelings about how um, you know whether that version of the the quote maker identity is diluting um the kind of the the ages old uh traditions and and field of engineering or design um i wonder if you have any feeling about that as somebody who comes from a, a sort of mixed background both with more uh more academically um traditional engineering but also this this kind of wacky set of experiences and and uh and performance-based learn you know education and undergraduate um how do you feel about that uh what i love about adam savage is that is that he's got sort of a whimsy and the humor and a playfulness that really draws um as an opportunity to draw kids into pursuing science and asking questions um and trying to answer them, you know, by using their hands, which is, which is pretty interesting. So from a STEM perspective, I think that's really, um, I think it's really valuable. Uh, if I was to look at it from a different perspective, say that of a, uh, an artisan, you know, you might argue that, you know, he doesn't take his craft very seriously and that he's not really disciplined about pursuing any one craft to the, to a degree of becoming a true master. Mm. But, um, I guess I, you know, for me personally, I, I, I love his humor and I love his whimsy. And I think, um, I think the real opportunity there is to draw kids into, uh, developing a healthy curiosity and, uh, an interest in building things. And, um, and perhaps, uh, that idea of, of developing questions in your mind that you then go about, you know, finding answers to, and that is probably a pretty healthy way to sort of launch into, um, you know, educational pursuits yeah yeah i think i think i i uh i think i agree uh personally it's it's uh i think that's an important two two sides of uh or two different perspectives on on it but i think uh as certainly as somebody who's coming out of um a field where you know my interest is in getting young people interested i think that uh there's something about that uh he's got this kind of like uh you know indiana jones-esque uh 
vibe to the idea of of putting you know science and creativity together and i think that's exactly um kind of where we need to be we need we need a thousand uh a, a million adam savages and we need to um put one in every community <laughs> um so yeah that, i mean that, that yeah that kind of curiosity and um and whimsy. I mean, for me, I mean, one thing that is a, such an essential ingredient in in learning is having fun. Yeah. So for me, uh, what he embodies for me is this idea of like, you know, life is interesting, and I want to be curious. And I want to have fun, sort of exploring what the universe is and how it all works. I mean, that that for me is is uh, is super valuable, and I I learn a lot from that perspective and try to kind of integrate that into the way that we pursue things in our lab. Yeah. So let's, let's actually use that as a moment to transition back to the lab. So, um, whimsy and fun somewhere, uh, as, as we were kind of back and forth preparing for this conversation, uh, Bruce Lee came up and I wonder if you could, you could tie us back to the lab by talking about how, how, uh, Bruce Lee comes up in the, in the context of getting young people, uh, you know, sort of thinking through the skills and tools uh, necessary to take on this role. Oh, Bruce Lee is amazing, first of all. But um, so my question for you, for anyone who's listened to this, listening to this podcast, like, have you seen um, the video of Bruce Lee uh, playing ping pong with nunchucks? Yes. Okay. So um if you haven't seen it, then you should pause the podcast right now. You, you search on YouTube, find this video of Bruce Lee playing ping pong with a, uh, he's using nunchucks and he's playing a ping pong master. So you should go do that now. For anyone, for I can't even imagine uh, those who, who might not be familiar with nunchucks, but these are essentially uh, two, maybe 10 to 12 inch, uh, kind of, you could picture a dowel, uh, connected by a chain or a string and they're used as a, as a weapon in martial arts, uh, popular, yes, popularized by the Ninja Turtles. <laughs> <laughs> and Bruce Lee. So, uh, so once, once you've seen that, I'm going to give you a moment. So pause for a moment. Uh, after you see that, come back and then uh, spoiler alert, it's important to know this. That fact is not didn't really happen, but mm. what? And I almost hate saying that if you if you weren't aware of that. But what's important to know is that if if for for a moment after you've watched that, if you can entertain the 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 idea that this is possible that a human being could do something so extraordinary, yeah. Um, so that's sort of the, the the thing I want you to hold on to. I mean, there are other examples of people that do extraordinary feats. You know, I you know I'm going to date myself here, but if you think of like a Michael Jordan. Or uh, even a Jimi Hendrix, just a, uh, a human being who is so virtuous in some medium. Um, uh, I find that inspiring. And so, so the idea is I've used that the video of Bruce Lee playing ping pong to cue up this idea of imagine like, what would it be like? Like, what would it look like to be the Bruce Lee, for example, of 3D printing? Mm. But what, what would that mean? Would that mean that you know about all the different technologies, you know about different materials, you know about different build levels, you know, you're, you're, you're fluent in all these technologies, you know about, you know, how they're used, why they're used, you know, about metal 3D printing, you know, you can, you can imagine, you can frame for yourself your idea, like, I want to be the world's leading expert on this thing to be so virtuous in this realm that people come to me as, 
as this master, like, uh, you know, not out of vanity, but just out of like, what would that aptitude look like? Mm. That for me is really inspiring. Um, and so, I, I mean, I feel like like part of my role as a teacher is to really get students inspired by ideas. And I think the, um, just this idea of, of excellence and being just really great at something for me is, uh, is exciting. So I use that as an opportunity to kind of cue up that idea. I love that. Um, and for us, uh, you know, in our lab, um, uh, there's a couple of different ways I think about, about doing that. Like if you're, if you're truly to try to become masterful at something, you know, I, my mission is, you know, how do I, how do I, how do I bring that out in students? Like, how do I, uh, how do I facilitate that? Um, and so really the big, I, I, I've been playing around with this idea recently of breaking it down into three major buckets, just as a way of thinking about it. And those buckets, um, are mindset, uh, tool set and skill set. Mm. And so, you know, in the context of our lab, we're teaching people how to build things, you know, so tool setter is an important piece of that. Um, and for the mindset. So if we look at that one area, for example, I think about, um, you know, it's essential to have a growth mindset. You know, this is um, sort of a concept that I'm sure, you know, all educators are aware of at this point. But this idea that you're you're capable of learning anything, not that you're you're fixed and that you're never going to be good at something just because you aren't. It was idea that you can do anything and that you have uh, kind of a can do attitude that you believe you can learn, have sort of an energetic attitude about like, you know, what, I'm going to approach this thing. I'm going to learn this thing. Mm. That's super important. Um you know, also, I'd, again, I'd sort of advocate the idea of um, of having fun, you know, and if you think about like, OK, I'm going to enter this. I, I want to create the state for my students where they are. They believe they can do something and they're energetic and they're having fun. Like there are um, some environmental factors related to that. You know, so for us, you know, we have the good fortune of having a really brightly lit lab. But, you know, light's important, you know, having color on the walls. Uh, we like to play music in our lab. Um and our whole staff is really focused on being both energetic, but also being approachable. So, um, you know, and not being judgmental. So, you know, we're well aware that for a lot of people, you know, we have people with a whole range of aptitudes that come into our lab. Um, you know, so if somebody does something incorrectly, it's just part of the learning process. You know, it's not something to be criticized for. In fact, I would argue that, you know, you're going to learn more from your mistakes than if you're flawlessly you know, doing something. Yeah. So, um, right. So just to think about that in context. So mindset is, um, is really important and really like our, our mission, um, as well, uh, as much as we're trying to build confidence, we're also trying to build confidence, mm. right? So, um, if at the end of the day, I've, I've got a student that can walk away saying, you know what, I've learned a lot. I didn't think I could, but I did. I feel like I could learn more and I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about that. And that's, you know, that's a mission accomplished. Uh, yeah. Right? Big win. Um, I would, I would say, uh, uh, tool set also super important, you know, talked a little bit about analog versus digital tools. Um, and for, for, uh, I'd say for educators that are thinking, if you feel like you're at a disadvantage because you don't have all these digital tools, um, I encourage you to look at for some things, uh, uh, we're talking about this a little bit before, but, um, the, the movie Kane's arcade, have you, have you seen that? Yes. So just amazing. The, um, this, the, it's this uh, short movie that chronicles the tale of this super creative um, boy by the name of Kane who spends what well, I assume to be sad. I'm probably going to mischaracterize this, but the idea is that he's, his, 
his dad's working in this warehouse that has a ton of cardboard and he's sitting around during the day while his dad is working. And so he spends his time crafting this arcade out of uh, recycled cardboard and tape. And it's, it's this epic journey where he makes this amazing collection of things is it's, it's total blast. But uh, I say that because, uh, you know, it's an example of um, a ton of creativity and ingenious use of common materials don't require a lot of technology mm. you know so so uh so so those tools are easy to get your hands on so the analog tools the digital tools not so much so but um i would say that that it's important to start to start establishing um you know some proficiency in digital tools because there are so many uh so many advantages to having those you know you can collaborate um, virtually with people you can leverage, uh, you know, these digital repositories. Imagine like these three-dimensional databases that are that are freely available from, mm. you know, sources like the Smithsonian or from, you know, it could be things that are more artistic or historical, but also things that are more mechanical. From, you know, I could give you a long list of of different places. But, uh, you know, once you have these digital files, or things you can do, like you can scale things um, up and down. You know, in the example of the refrigerator that we used earlier, um, for example, if once we have a, a handle that we've designed, we can scale it up or down, you know, 15 or 20%, test it with 20 different human beings, and they're all going to have different reactions based on the size and how it feels for them independently. And so you yeah. can like sort of gather some meaningful data from that. Um, so that's an easy way to use a digital, you know, digital component, you know, using the strengths of that. But, um, you know, also just manufacturing flexibility. So, you know, once you have a, like a two-dimensional um geometry you know you can cut it on a laser you can cut it on you know cnc tool on a water jet you know even on a, like a vinyl cutter or a wire bender or a milling machine huge amount of flexibility there yeah so uh you know and i know it's it's challenging because a lot of people it's the resources are hard to find and there's so many factors um that go into that you know maybe the costs maybe it's you know you have the space for these things that's sort of a challenge we have in our lab i mean we could probably afford more technology, but, you know, we just don't have room to store it. Um, safety concerns, you know, maintenance, you know, how are you going to sort of manage all this stuff? Um, so tool set is certainly important if you're trying to sort of develop, um, you know, trying to create this Bruce Lee of making things, uh, you have to have the tools. And uh, I guess what, what I would say about that is that there, um, it may not be as hard to get access to these things as you think, you know, so Owning is one way that people think about these things, but it's also possible to lease or rent equipment or mm. borrow it. And it's possible to find a local makerspace that has equipment that, you know, would be useful for you to use and that people are typically happy to, to share. Um, you know, we do a lot of, uh, we'll outsource things. So if we say, hey, I want to have, a, um, use a technology that we can't afford or we can't really justify having in our lab, you know, there are outside vendors that are, uh, you know, they're happy to work with us. You know, they make their living by, by um, you know, prevent, pre presenting that technology to the outside world, um, and also uh, partnering with vendors. So if you can often say like, "Hey, we're considering this technology for our facility. Can you run a bunch of samples for me?" You know, often you know people are very happy to do that. So um, so to step back, so this, so imagine, all right, we're on the Bruce Lee track. We've got this this student that is like enthusiastic and energetic, and they're in a good mood. They're in this fun place. They've got access to tools. So what next, right? So there are, um, lastly, I'd say I've been focusing on this idea of skill set. Um, there may be practical things you can do if you think about like a uh, um, 
someone who's studying music, you know, where they play scales just to sort of um, uh, to 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 develop kind of a like a physical memory in their hands, like with the with the uh, instruments they're playing. There are there are kind of activities like that. Uh, I, we tend not to spend a lot of time doing those things, you know, in, in the context of machining, you know, maybe you would make features that are dimensionally accurate and components mm. that fit together in certain ways. Um, uh, and as, as, uh, as much as you can learn from those activities, you know, I always advocate for, you know, baking them into projects, you know, so, I mean, project-based learning is really kind of where it's at because you're actually going through all those steps, but you're doing so in the context of something that you're, you know, it's maybe more interesting for you. Um, School context is great, but even better yet is something that you're really interested in. You know? mm. So, like for example, at uh, at MIT, um, they have a, a facility called the Hobby Shop, and they have a couple classes over the um, this uh, independent section in between semesters. And they have like a guitar building class, they have a skateboard building class. You know, these are things that that are um, they're a little bit novel. You have a lot of creativity about um, what you infuse in these things, and typically it marries somebody's personal passion with uh, interest in learning. So anytime you can integrate those things, it's it's really the best. And we do we have sort of different other formal ways of getting into skill set, but um, but uh, yeah. So I've just been playing around with these ideas. Um, and again, you know, sort of at the end of the day, you know, sort of diving into these things like you know, mindset, tool set, skill set. It's really all about um, again, sort of having a joyful approach to learning about, you know, instilling confidence in uh, the students that we're working with and also trying to, to, to instill in them a sense of confidence so they can really, um, they have a problem that comes up and they say, you know what, I've seen how to do that. Or if I don't know how to do that, I think I got a pretty good idea of how I could, mm-hmm. how I could go about it. Yeah. So. I wonder, um, one of the things I didn't want to miss an opportunity to ask you about is the lab itself and the sort of physical environment. And, um, I'm, I'm sure you could, you could, we could spend tons of time just talking about the, how the lab is laid out and what that blueprint looks like and, and what you've learned over time about the most efficient way to set that up. But, but one of the things I imagined, um, folks listening to this conversation might gain something from is, is, um, if you could share some, ideas, rules of thumb, uh, tricks for layout, uh, safety tips, you know, things that over time of running a a lab like this and seeing it in multiple that you have a hobby, the hobby shop and all these different spaces at MIT where, um, I'm, I'm sure over time you've developed kind of patterns for how to make those work and just sort of function well. Um, you know, for, somebody who maybe I've had a makerspace up for a year or two and, uh, but so far it kind of looks like, uh, you know, looks like a, a room with a bunch of bins that end up getting sort of, uh, taken out and, and spread on a table from time to time, but, but doesn't yet have the kind of order that helps students to feel like, um, you know, they're in a, uh, a, sh- a shop with purpose. Um, can you share, some some tips and tricks that have sort of come up over your time at MIT. Uh, so one way I like to think about this is, uh, is this concept they use in retail called intelligent adjacency, and it's this idea of you know do I put the um, the jams with the jams or do I put the jelly next to the peanut butter? 
You know, you think right. about how things pair together and how you would logically sort of find them. Yes. Um, you know, so do I put the nails next to the hammers or the nails live with other hardware and then the hammers live next to the other hand tools? So I think it's going to it's going to vary based on um, based on the uh, facility that you use and you know, so how you're using your tools. Uh, I will say one thing that we commonly do is there are things um, like we know we always need like we always need a pencil and paper. So we always have um, these caddies that are full of sharpened pencils mm. and pads of paper, which are uh, I, I like to joke with one of my colleagues that I, I don't want to be able to um, have like I always want to have a tape measure pencil and some paper within arm's reach. So if I have to reach more than, you know, I have to take more than a few steps to find one that I think that we're not doing our job well. Nice. Um, uh, another thought that comes to mind is, uh, is sort of safety, you know, so we, we cluster together all of the, um, all the tools that require, um, more oversight. So in that category, I would include, you know, we have some, um, some heavy band saws and milling machines and lathes, uh, we have them um, staged in such a way that uh, there's always a staff member that can uh, can see and hear all the students working. So if at any time, like we're on lunch break or whatnot, we power down the entire uh, area. So uh, so access is really you know is limited to times when we can kind of control safety uh, mm. in a thoughtful way. So uh, so safety is certainly one area of concern. Um, I think also of uh, like material flow. So if you're in a big workshop and you've got um, commonly have like big panels of material coming in, you know, they need to be processed on a, a saw before they would then make it into another part of the workshop. Um, we usually sort of manage material storage in that way. So in the ideal world, there's a, you know, it's kind of a logical um, sequence of, uh, you know, entry to storage to, you know, rough cutting and then going on further to kind of finer mm. spots. But you know, honestly, MIT is a good example of this, that more often than not, you have to work with what you have and what you have is not designed for the way that you're using it. Hmm. So, um, uh, you know, I, I guess what I would recommend is just touring as many local facilities as you can. And I always get ideas from looking at different places. And I, I, um, um, I love looking for opportunities to sort of find inspiration to sort of build into our labs. There's always somebody that's doing something that's interesting out there that you haven't thought of. Yeah. Uh, and really probably getting out and seeing other, other places is the best way to do that. We talked a little bit about um, these panels that you've been working on uh, over time. Uh, and I had, I had really hoped that uh, as a, a kind of bonus for, you know, folks listening to this episode that I can offer some links to, um, the, the, some of the files that, that you've put together for these panels. Can you just describe them and what role they have in the, as a, as a learning tool, but in the lab and, and, uh, what they serve? Sure. Um, so very happy to share those, uh, and I'll make sure I get you some links to locations. But uh, an example would be, um, you know, we have a couple of panels that we developed um, uh, related to 3D printing. And uh, we have one of our industrial partners, Stratasystems uh, or Stratasys Inc., who uh, they developed some of the sort of the more professional grades of 3D printers yeah. and also kind of the parent company to MakerBot. Uh, but uh, they've been super supportive of us and we work together on developing some 
um, some panels that we we posted. So it, it's one thing to say, hey, I want to 3D print something, and it's another thing to um, really consider some of the nuance of the technology itself. So examples of those uh, features might be like wall thickness. You know, what would be the um, height to width ratio of a wall that feels like structural and strong? Mm. Um, things you want to think about, like core density um, of the parts you're printing and the relationship to print time. Um, and some of this is a little bit wonky, you know, getting into it, but um, it really is important. You know, if you if you think about, um, hey, if I adjust the core density of this 3D print, I can actually make, you know, two in the time that it would otherwise take to make one. You know, that's going to be more efficient use of, you know, the machine. It's going to take less time. It's going to use less material. And ultimately, the real sweet spot is if you can bake in more iterations into your design process. So, um, so the panels that we 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 make um, are really about uh, stage. It's not designed to. Um, it's really designed to sort of stage a conversation. So, somebody says, "Hey, what do I need to know about this?" We can walk up to it and sort of point to a number of different features um, and really articulate things that they should think about and things that they should watch out for. So we have some of those related to 3D printing. We've got some um, related to flexures that we were describing before, you know, I have files for, um, for, uh, for those, most of the 3D printed forms as well as for laser cut forms. If people had access to that technology and they wanted to, to uh, replicate them for their lab. Um, what else we got? We got a few different ones. The leather forming one, I'd be happy to share some files related to those if you want to duplicate that. Those Great. Are, those are pretty um, quick to print, and if you have a small uh, square of leather, they're easy to duplicate. So stuff like that's kind of fun. Super fun. Uh, um, I'm going to put some some uh, a photo or two of. Uh, I think I I can grab um, some images of the panels at work, and and just to describe what we're talking about when we say panel, it's almost like think of a museum panel or, a uh, like a demonstration poster. So, um, you know, sometimes you go to, let's say you go to a retail, like a hardware store and you're looking for a certain profile of molding, um, oftentimes hanging on one side, they'll have a, a panel, um, that's picture a poster size thing that shows, you know, maybe it shows cross cuts of the different types of molding you could buy and the materials, um, the types of wood, et cetera. And, and in a retail store, it might have cost next to it or whatever. So, um, picture panels like that, uh, but that describe, um, the types of joinery you might make, uh, in 3d, uh, using, um, using a 3d printer or, uh, you know, some of the ones that, that you just described. Um, so just to paint a, a clearer picture, these are really, really neat tools. And I think, um, you know, it could even be an interesting project for, you know, an educator who has a makerspace and maybe they have a, you know, you might have a laser cutter, you may have a 3D printer uh, or other tools, even hand tools. Um, it might be a really interesting project even to have students um, create the panels as um, learning tools for uh, as for conversation and demonstration purposes, but also as a way for them to hone their own skills around, you know, maybe they're doing different diameters of a thing or, or, um, different densities of a thing, et cetera. So anyway, the, um, you offering some links to those files is a, is a, um, 
a huge treat for uh, for the right user. I think when you guys, when uh, folks see the images of these things, you'll see why um, they could be a really useful tool for uh, uh, school or after school makerspace. I, I love the idea of plugging students into that process because it's uh, um, that's awesome. It's it's also like it's awesome to be able to sort of own a project like that, but also um, to sort of create some content. Yeah. You know, you know, one thing I would say about that also is that um, I think one of the things that works well for our system, and I um, I feel I shouldn't say I feel proud about it because it's not really that big of a deal, but um, I developed sort of a uh, a uniform sizing structure. And what's meaningful about that is that I made these brackets for our wall so that we can slide the panels in and out, and they're all um, 11 by 17 mm. in, in size format. And so what's cool about that is that when we have, we have different classes where we care about different things. And so we can slide the panels in and out. So for an introductory class, we might have some introductory panels posted related to, you know, fastener styles and different kinds of hardware, or nice. have, you know, 3D printing fundamentals or laser cutting. You know, for a different kind of class, maybe we'll we'll swap out, you know, the color 3D printed parts or, uh, you know, more sophisticated or more advanced lessons to learn in each of these realms. But but having for, for us having that um, like the architectural piece is this is this holder, but the um, having sort of these panels that we can swap in and out of there. So it's kind of like an analog version of a digital you know monitor that you would have up where you could sort of change the display. Yeah. I was, I was, it's funny that you say that. Cause I, in my mind, I was thinking here we are in K-12 spending, uh, just a bananas amount of money on things like interactive whiteboards. Um, and I'm sure, you know, teachers who are listening to this conversation at, at the beginning would be thinking, Oh, an MIT lab, they probably have, you know, crazy monitors all over the room and everything else. But I love that what we're describing is a quite uh, sort of old school analog way to to demo something and kind of get your eyes and hands on it. Yeah, and things like uh, like this flexure concept also. I think if you haven't seen it and you see it, you're, it's one of those things that's a little bit awe-inspiring. You're like, huh, I didn't think that was possible. But yeah. you can also do that on a, uh, on a bandsaw. So it doesn't require super sophisticated equipment. It's really more you're trying to articulate an idea and just sort of plant that seed in your students' minds that is hopefully a little bit surprising and hopefully it will trigger something that, um, you know, gets them to want to examine, explore materials, you know, infuse, you know, new ideas into their projects. So, Tasker, this has been a huge treat. I uh, I want to thank you so much for the time, and uh, I think a lot of people are going to be inspired uh, by some of the things that that you've shared. I really can't thank you enough for sharing your experience and your ideas, and and uh, I think it's a, a great motivator for me, and I think a lot of educators uh, and and others who are listening to think about um, what they're doing that might be preparing students for a step that leads them to, uh, you know, an, uh, an institution like MIT or the many, many, um, you know, more, more local or state schools and, and other places where engineers and designers are being, uh, prepared for, to solve the, the problems of our time. Uh, I think it's, it's really inspiring. So, uh, thank you a, a tremendous amount. Absolutely. My pleasure. And if I could throw in one last sort of word of advice, I think this is just so important. Please. Um, 
you know, some MIT uh, developed this program recently where they started um, reviewing uh, what they refer to as maker portfolios um, yes. in, uh, in connection with, you know, sort of written um, applications. And, uh, you know, it, it brings to mind, I, I read this um, article about Harvard uh, last year about how many of the valedictorians uh, do not make it into Harvard. I think that's true of MIT as well. Yeah. And you would, you would think like, how is that possible that I've done, you know, I'm the best in my class and yet I'm not being accepted. And uh, I come back to this idea of this maker portfolio. It is, it is essential that you, um, that your students document the work that they're doing. You know, it tells a story. It tells about their proficiency in what they're working on. It tells about their curiosity. It shares something about their personality and it's, and it's something that's memorable. Um, so, uh, I just want to throw that out there as a, you know, if I could give one word of advice to any teachers that are trying to sort of get their students ready um, for work for the world, whether it's applying to schools or applying for jobs, if you have some visual documents and even better, something that someone can hold in their hand and really sort of examine and it helps them uh, give them some perspective on these students. It is, it, I, I can't emphasize enough how important that is. It's really great. Amen. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, I think a lot of, us, um, certainly in K-12, um, are even, even educators sometimes who, uh, are so forward thinking that they're working on, uh, you know, maker education and, and, um, these kinds of things for, for, uh, you know, it's hard not to default to the sort of transcript based system of your, um, and I think more and more, you know, it's just so important to be reemphasizing how important it is that, uh, demonstration is, uh, is I think I really have a lot of faith and this is my opinion, um, but is going to be, uh, more and more the uh, ticket to entry for uh, the next steps, whether it's professionally or, or um, academically. So it's such a great point and place uh, to land as a, as a piece of advice. So thank you for that. It's been a a pleasure and I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity to, uh, to share some thoughts about our lab and uh, about making stuff and, bringing some joy into, uh, you know, the process of teaching and learning and growing. Where, if people want to, uh, follow some of your work, Tasker, where can they do it? You know, I'd say the best place, I don't spend a lot of time curating a sort of a online presence, but, um, if you search me out on LinkedIn, um, I, uh, very often will sort of repost things through that channel. Terrific. Tasker Smith on LinkedIn. Um, Tasker, thank you again. This has been such a treat. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in Episode Zero, an Ithaca bomber, an engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No Such Thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. This show would not be possible without the support from the good people at Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us online at mouse.org. 